You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. Today, we have the opportunity to hear from Carl Craver, professor of philosophy at Washington University in St. Louis. Professor Craver works at the intersection of philosophy, psychology, and neuroscience. The aspect of his research that we'll hear about today deals with a fundamental question about the importance of memory. Is it our ability to remember personal events that makes us distinctly human? Before we hear about Craver's research, first we need to understand that there are several different types of memory. Almost everyone now agrees that memory is not a unitary kind of phenomenon, that it divides into subtypes of memory. The ability to remember how to swing a tennis racket or to get rid of your slice in golf it seems very different from the ability to memorize Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. While I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping as uh, of Which seems, on the other hand, very different from our ability to, as it were, rewind the memory tapes and put ourselves in a position that we were uh, several years ago. Uh, although that metaphor of rewinding the tapes is not at all accurate, it nonetheless captures something about the phenomenology of the experience, the ability to transport yourself to a different time, to imagine yourself in that time. I can sit here right now and I can imagine going to Six Flags outside of St. Louis with my daughter and riding the roller coasters and I can see her with her hands in the air and I can see the trees around me, I can see the layout of the park. These are the kinds of things that typically characterize episodic memories. They're memories for events and those events are remembered in such a way that they're accompanied by the experience of having previously experienced that event. So, just to quickly recap, episodic memory makes up personal memories. When you recall what happened today, last week, or five years ago, you're using episodic memory. These types of memories are different than the facts you memorize in school or the knowledge and skills that you pick up throughout life. Those are called semantic memories. So what makes episodic memory so distinct and so important? A lot of people Philosophers and scientists alike seem to say with great frequency that episodic memory is somehow central to our status as humans, as people, something that separates us from other organisms. So Andal Tolving in particular has famously claimed that only humans have the capacity to mentally transport themselves back to earlier times. And there's a lot of dispute about that. Some people have found evidence of episodic-like memory in, for instance, scrub jays or other corvid uh, kinds of birds. But almost everybody seems to think that somehow our ability to reflect back on what we've done, our time spent with other people, to remember what we've committed ourselves to, that those are really quite fundamental to what makes us the distinctively special kinds of things that we are. And by that, I, I, I don't, I'm using that as something of a placeholder for things like being a moral agent, being the sort of thing whose moral worth matters to us, uh, being the kind of thing that can be held responsible for its actions, being the kind of thing that maintains its identity from one moment to the next. Those are the kinds of things that we take to be, in a way, somehow distinctively special about us. And and the thought that episodic memory plays some distinctive role in that is really enticing. And uh, so I really became interested in that question, given that people seem to think that episodic memory is distinctly human, and it intuitively plays such a strong role in our lives as people, in our distinctive lives as people, the question became, are those intuitions right? And is it the case that people who lack episodic memory somehow deserve a demotion 
in their moral status, that they're no longer people in the fullest sense of the word, that they're no longer really agents, that they're no longer really the kinds of things that could be held responsible for their actions. And for me, that, those are really strong claims to make about somebody. It's like saying that they're not, not a person, not a self, not an agent. That's putting them in a very different moral category. And it seems to me that those questions are partly empirical questions about what people who lack episodic memory can and cannot do. And they're partly philosophical questions about what you have to be able to do in order to count as a moral agent, a person of worth, those sorts of things. And so it's uniquely a kind of question that requires a certain amount of philosophical expertise and a certain amount of scientific expertise. And I continue to try to cobble together such expertise as I work on this stuff. Over the last five years, mo mostly through some fortuitous occurrences here at Washington University, uh, I got access to some people who have damage to parts of their brain that are responsible for different kinds of memory. The one that I have the primary interaction with is in Toronto, and he goes by the name of Casey. And he was first studied by Endel Tolving. And the way that I came into contact with him was uh, I was giving a talk about a patient now dead known as HM, who's maybe the most famous case of amnesia in history. And it turned out, unknown to me, that Endel Tolving was sitting in the back of the room while I was giving this talk. And Endel came up to me afterwards and he said, these are really interesting questions that we don't seem to be focused on in psychology. Questions about whether if you can't remember anything for the longer than a, a few seconds or a few minutes, can you really give consent to participate in an experiment? Can you make a promise? that you'll do something tomorrow, today. And Endel Tolving was, like I said, sitting in the back of the room and he came up to me afterwards and said, you know, you really, instead of speculating about these things, you really ought to just come up and meet KC, who's maybe one of the most famous amnesics and in some ways is more interesting than HM, he pointed out. And so I thought, wow, I, you know, how can I miss this opportunity? It's the kind of thing that I've been wanting to do my, my entire life. So now Craver had access to Casey in Toronto, who lacked episodic memory after a car accident at age 23. Through a colleague, he was also able to learn about John in London, who at birth had brain damage affecting his episodic memory. Now the question became, how do people like Casey and people like John think about the past, the present, and the future? Is it possible to understand time as the rest of us know it without any personal memories? And what sort of tests do you even run to figure out how someone thinks about time? It turns out that some of these questions are really quite basic. You just say, can you say what the future is? Can you say what the past is? If something is in the future, will it always be in the future? Um, if something is in the past, will it always be in the past? If something is in the present, will it always be in the present? If something's in the past, can you change it? So we ask him questions about the conceptual knowledge of what the past, present, and future are and about the kinds of change that the flow of time makes possible or impossible. So we also asked a series of questions about time travel. So we asked them if they, you know, if they understood what it would mean to travel in time. And then they say, oh yeah, you know, you get into this machine, you dial it, and, and it transports you to you know, some previous era, for example. And that indicates that they have some idea that time is flowing 
and that it, it typically only flows in one direction. And it would take incredibly special circumstances to reverse that. Or, you know, some of them have managed to learn, you know, like enough relativity, for example, to be able to say that, uh, well, it depends on how fast I get going. And they're really thinking in very sophisticated ways about these things. We tend to think that people who have amnesia of this sort are completely cognitively debilitated, but they're not. You know, they really, they do have some conception of where they stand in time. So what that tells us is you can master the conceptual knowledge of time, the past, the present, and the future, without any ability to remember specific events in your past. And that's, that's interesting, I think. It's progress, at least. It's a kind of progress. So people with amnesia, even people like John, who had episodic amnesia from birth, can still understand the concept of time in much the same way as people without that type of brain damage. But there are more questions to ask. It turns out that a person's ability to remember the past also affects how they imagine the future. Let's hear more. People who have deficits in episodic memory also tend to have deficits in their ability to anticipate the future, to, to think of, to imagine themselves in future scenarios. There are people who have the hypothesis that, that our ability to construct scenes in the future uses as raw materials our past experiences, so that the only thing that you can do when you're thinking about the future is cobble together the past experiences that you've had into some new kind of situation. So there are a number of scholars who've argued that episodic future thought requires episodic memory as the material for flexibly recombining possible counterfactual future scenarios. It's well known that people with episodic memory deficits can you know, say, for instance, what they think the top 10 global crises that we face at the moment. They can answer questions like that, but there they're drawing on their semantic knowledge. Right? If we ask them to imagine what they're doing tomorrow, what they're likely to do tomorrow, they, they just typically report that it's blank, that it's, it's the same as what they say about their past, that there's nothing, nothing comes to mind. There's just a big emptiness. Sometimes you know, he says it's like being in the middle of a dark ocean, uh, and there's just nothing, there's nothing to see, there's nothing to get your hands on. You're just floating in the middle of nothingness. And that's what he says it feels like to imagine the future. So you might think, as my colleague here, Jeff Zox, uh, does, that really what's been damaged in these people is an, an ability to construct events. And those could be in the past or in the future, but one system, the event construction system, seems to be what's damaged in, in these people. So then you think, okay, somebody who can't imagine receiving some award in the future, would they have any reason to sacrifice now, to, to endure pain or suffering now, or to put in long hours studying for some future reward if they can't even imagine receiving that future reward? You know, here I am, I'm working at the university, I'm studying, I'm miserable, it's three o'clock in the morning, and I can't even imagine the day when I pass the test. I can't even imagine the day when I get my diploma. What motivates me to keep studying like that? And you might think that it's this scene construction. You imagine yourself on the podium, your parents are beaming, you know, you're, you're the, the chancellor himself hands you the diploma and off you go. And it turns out that's false too. We have studies where we show that uh, people without the ability to imagine the future, nonetheless think it's very valuable to them, 
think that it's important to delay gratification for larger rewards in the future. They discount the value of future rewards uh, at exactly the same rate, as, or at least very close to the same rate, as do other people. We're all quite variable in all of them. We've now, I think, conclusively demonstrated that people discount the future without the ability to imagine it, and that they value the future without, without being able to imagine it. Yet even with these results, drawing conclusions about the role of episodic memory is hardly straightforward. It's much easier to say what episodic memory does not do for us than it is for us to say what episodic memory does for us. If, if KC fails on some task, we don't know whether his failure is due to the absence of episodic memory or whether it's due to you know, damage to his amygdala, for example. We know that his amygdala is damaged. That's going to have an, an important impact on his ability to experience emotions the way that the rest of us do. Well, how does that emotional change impact on one's decision-making? What's really exciting to us is when Casey looks just like the rest of us. Because at that point, we're in a position to claim that you can, you can look just like the rest of us without episodic memory. Let's go back to the beginning. Professor Craver was asking really big questions about how personal memory does or does not make us distinctly human. The overall theory that he's confronting is called the episodic necessity hypothesis. And when Casey and others without episodic memory look just like the rest of us, parts of this theory are being struck down, one by one. So while personal memory certainly has a major role in our lives, it might not be as essential as you think. Many thanks to Carl Craver for contributing to Hold That Thought. You can find links to more of his work from our website, thought.artsci.wustl.edu. That's thought.artsci.wustl.edu. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Carl Craver, and you're listening to Hold That Thought.